Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Brandon Carper, an instructional designer. And I'm Chad Hayfley. I work in user experience in academic libraries. And we come to you after a brief hiatus, although it didn't seem like that from your end, possibly. You're revealing the secrets, stepping behind the curtain. <laughs> I uh, was in Japan for a couple weeks, and Chad was traveling up and down the eastern seaboard, if, if I'm correct. In the face of a hurricane, yes. Yes, and uh, we are both still alive, so well done us. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I, I spent some time uh, in Japan being a tourist. Uh, I was there before, never really learned the language, and so I had a lot of conversations that I just didn't understand Learn to listen for keywords and just nod at things that didn't seem important to understand when someone was talking to me about. Um, but that leads into our topic for today, which is, uh, have you ever been in a work or a school situation where you weren't sure what was expected of you? No, I am competent all the time and <laughs> always know everything good forever. <laughs> And all the people around you would have to be the same. Well, yes, because I lead by example. Ah, yes. Wow. I have no response to that. Episode (laughs) over. (laughs) So uh, an example I have was coming into college as a freshman and writing my first five-page English paper. So in high school, I was used to responding to prompts. But in college, I had to come up with a thesis statement and five pages of insightful material out of nowhere. And I wasn't really equipped to do that. Uh, The professor provided some example thesis statements, but I couldn't really look at them and figure out how I was supposed to get from those examples to make up my own brilliant thing that had never been thought of before as an 18-year-old boy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's always a weird situation to when you think about it in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, that could possibly be an entire other series of episodes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I took a shot. I did really bad. Um, eventually, through repeated exposure to English classes, I, I figured out that the key was just to take some idea that didn't seem connected at all to the work of literature and give details to show how it actually was connected. And that makes you seem really smart, I I figured out. As long as it's a connection no one else has come up with before. I mean, eventually, like, all possible connections will have been made and you're reduced to, like, ice cream and and Headman's Tale. That's... There's there's a thing. Uh, although it did lead me to a very charming book called Postmodern Poo, um, P-O-O-H. Oh, I was wondering. <laughs> Where it took, uh, all the literary theories. I had been studying and applied them to Winnie the Pooh. Anyway. Wow, okay. Anyway, my big triumph, uh, my senior year was I took Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, where the typical conception is that being invisible is a bad thing. And, get this, Chad, are you ready? I'm I'm braced. I took Foucault's theory of knowledge being power and used that to show how, if you're invisible, you actually have more power in some ways over the people who are visible. What? Because you know things about them and they don't know much about you. Bam. No way. Nope. Yeah. Did you drop the mic as you turned in the paper? Uh, In my head, (laughs) yes. As a side note, I was very disappointed in college to learn that 
Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is not H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. <laughs> Same. <Yeah>. Same. <laughs> I, I did grow to like Ralph Ellison's version, but that that was indeed well, it was a bit of a culture shock at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Chad, your turn to share. So mine's a little bit more recent. This was in the last year or two. I was taking some classes online and did a basic design class which had the wonderful distinction of being both an online course and a group project within the online course, uh, the perfect Venn diagram of trouble. Pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so our big final project for the course, we up till then had been a very practically oriented kind of thing, like here's design principles, go apply them. And then we got to the end and we learned about like one reading on a process called design thinking. Are you familiar with it at all? Yeah, but it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Thus the problem in in this <laughs> class, because we were put into a group, um, you know, people across time zones where we had to coordinate meetings. That's probably another topic we've discussed before, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we were given the prompt of saying, use design thinking to analyze the concept of time. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And, and the professor just kind of said, go, uh, you know, come back in a few weeks with your with your outcome from this and we all just kind of stared at each other in a google hangout session and and shrugged a lot um and later on i ended up learning more about design thinking like it is a solid and creative problem solving process but we were just dumped into it without any real introduction or context like just a one word prompt even is is even if you know a lot about design thinking is not enough to go with and again the fact that it was an online course didn't help Uh, so yeah that we felt kind of lost and i honestly cannot remember what we turned in at the end of it this was this was not that long ago like this was much more recently than college and now i'm wondering did we turn it in <laughs> perhaps well you, you turned out okay yes yeah, you know it was just a certificate program what what is design thinking in a nutshell from from your program's uh, perspective well what we were given was uh, like a 90 minute intro i think it was through the stanford design school maybe i can link to it it's a video they've put together where mm-hmm. you run through the whole process of um like brainstorming or oh, first first you interview someone about a possible area of problem they might have and then you brainstorm in your groups and you do some like paper prototypes with um, glue sticks and, and other fun stuff and then test them on each other at the end so you run through the whole creative process in 90 minutes just to get an idea of um, what design thinking might mean it's one of those things where people i think sometimes mistake the map for the territory and they decide that mm. uh, design thinking is nothing but these 90 minute workshops when <laughs> In reality, that's supposed to be like a 90-minute workshop to introduce you to the broader concepts, but such it is. Huh. That reminds me of, I think it was a Reader's Digest story I read, which, yeah, well, I guess you can make your own opinion about its veracity, but uh, I guess a college professor in a philosophy class, the final exam was one question, which is, what is courage? Whoa. And someone and someone wrote down this is and turned it in and they got an A. Bam. <laughs> I want that to be true. I will do no research on it because I want to believe that's true. <laughs> so that brings us to today's topic, which is da, 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 discovery learning. So uh, the best way to understand discovery learning is by comparing it with expository teaching, which is probably what everyone is used to going through. So the original idea was that students would learn the underlying concepts behind something by looking at several examples, and eventually they would figure out what was in common. 
Whereas with expository teaching, the instructor would tell you, here's what all these things have in common. Here are some examples. Let's get moving. So that was the original idea of what discovery learning is. Nowadays, it's more about using the scientific method to learn something in some circles. So coming up with a hypothesis, conducting an experiment, seeing what happens and drawing your own conclusions. Uh, and you can learn more about that in an article called Scientific Discovery Learning with Computer Simulations of Conceptual Domains from the Review of Educational Research. Is that generally applied in classroom settings or like in the training world also? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've heard about it more applied in classroom settings, not so much in adult training sessions, although we're going to look at a few examples. Uh, so one hypothetical example is, let's say you're conducting leadership training on how to avoid mistakes as a CEO. So the discovery learning approach might be to present some examples of troubled CEOs like, you know, Ken Lay from Enron or more recently, John Stump from Wells Fargo. It's an all-star team. And learners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Learners would have to discuss the similarities between these case studies and then come up with principles they should follow just by looking at all these, you know, examples or not follow as the case may be. And then the role of the instructor would just be to provide sources of information or maybe stimulate discussion. The uh, expository teaching approach, on the other hand, would be for the instructor to present some concepts of bad leadership first, and then an illustration of how those concepts showed up in the examples of Ken Lay and John Stumpf and others. So it's kind of the, the inverse. Gotcha. At the end of both of these approaches would probably be some exercise where learners were given hypothetical situations or where they came up with some of their own and had to suggest courses of action based on what they just learned. Although I guess in a strictly discovery learning setting, there might not be even that amount of exercise. There might just be, you know, drawing conclusions on your own without any guidance from the instructor. Does there tend to be reporting back to the group afterward or anything like that? I would say in, I guess if you were to implement a discovery learning approach like this in the, the corporate world, there would have to be some, I guess, lag time to go back and do homework, right? Mm -hmm. Because... Yeah, how else are you going to have the time to uh, learn the concepts that you're supposed to learn? So, yeah, I would imagine there would be reporting back to the group, uh, maybe through online discussion boards or something like that. Uh, ironically, I'm going to use expository teaching to explain <laughs> discovery learning. So, Well, it's, it's a little bit hard <laughs> to let people discover their own path through a podcast. <laughs> Although... <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> Choose your own <laughs> podcast adventure. <laughs> uh, the idea of discovery learning can be traced back to J.S. Bruner. Uh, on the benefits of discovery learning, he, he gave four, which uh, are kind of charming because they're from a 1960s article. Is that the era of <laughs> Bruner around that time? Yeah, it's when his ideas first, uh, I think came to prominence. He had a, a brief study with some other people in the 50s, and then he published this article in 1961, I believe. Uh, and it's amazing how much the language of, of training and learning has changed since then. So the, the, the first benefit he gives of discovery learning is saying it increases, quote, intellectual potency. That is very, <laughs> yeah, of an era. <laughs> Which, if you say that to a contemporary 
you know, instructional designer, it's like going to a doctor and asking them to diagnose you based on the four humors in your, <laughs> your body. <laughs> There's not it's enough just... phlegm used in modern training approaches, I think. Uh, it all depends on who you ask, I suppose. Oh, good point. Uh, his, his quote from there is that, uh, practice and discovering for oneself teaches one to acquire information in a way that makes that information more readily viable in problem solving. So basically if you discover it on your own, it'll be easier for you to use it in the future. I wonder how much that's an artifact of the information discovery was available at the time. I mean, turning someone loose on the internet versus old school research in, in, print books when it might have been a little bit different i don't know it sounds like hmm that's a really good question actually i wonder how his views would have differed if acquiring information was as easy then as it is now mm-hmm. huh i'm, I'm gonna assume to he that. did not live into the 21st century uh, i'm not sure uh when he passed well we'll see if we can get him as a guest next week if he's okay. if he's still <laughs> Uh, that's something we can certainly discover. <laughs> uh, his, his second main benefit for discovery learning that he lists is that it shifts the rewards for learning from extrinsic to intrinsic. So we've talked about this before where, uh, an intrinsic reward means you're doing something for the sake of doing something. You like doing it. Extrinsic means someone is giving you, uh, money or candy or points for completing a learning assignment. That's one of the problems we run into a lot with trying to do um, usability studies and, and user interviews and things like that, is that you're ultimately paying them for it. And how does that impact what they tell you? They're going to tell you what, what you want to hear. Yeah, how do you typically get around that in your experience? Or do you just adjust for it in your... Yeah, you just ask more careful questions and um, try to cross-reference things from multiple angles. And it's just a kind of a fact of life you have to deal with. Yeah, I think generally across the board, the consensus is that intrinsic motivation in most cases is more effective at producing the behavior that you want Yes, <laughs> in a, a sustained way, as well as uh, creative thinking. We talked about that a bit, I think, in our Papers, Please episode. Mm-hmm. Um, he also said that discovery learning helps people learn the heuristics of discovering. Heuristics is a word that's underutilized. <laughs> Uh, I think today we would usually call these metacognitive skills, which uh, basically means learning how to learn. Uh, quote from Bruner, he says, how do we teach a child to, say, cut his losses, but at the same time be persistent in trying out an idea, to risk forming an early hunch without the, at the same time formulating one so early and with so little evidence as to be stuck with it, waiting for appropriate evidence to materialize? He managed to, I think, summarize all of my anxieties about parenting in, like, like two sentences. <laughs> well, that's true, Chad, because if you make a mistake... It's all over. That's, that's like, hardwired into your child's psyche. No mm-hmm. pressure. Uh, I have a much less dramatic example, which is it sounds like my experience teaching myself programming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a reason I'm not a developer anymore. <laughs> which, uh... I'll, I'll come back to later, but yeah, there have been so many times where I've just gone down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. for 
four or five hours looking for this thing that isn't actually a thing you can do in the language that I was using. Surprise. I should yeah, surprise. Uh, he also says, I have never seen anybody improve in the art and technique of inquiry by any means other than engaging an inquiry. That's, so, it's one of those statements that I feel like, yeah. I mean, you, you replace the word inquiry with just about anything. And, I mean, you, well, that's what, makes it, that's what makes it true, isn't it, Chad? I, I suppose. How are you going to get better at learning things on your own unless you learn things on your own? I don't know how to answer mm. that. He also said that discovery learning helps people remember what they've learned. So an example is if someone comes up with their own connections or a mnemonic device, they're more likely to remember it than if they, they got it from someone else. Uh, which is also a current consensus in training and education. As as far as it goes, we'll, we'll come back to that one a little bit later as well. That brings us to the game of the day, which is... The Vanishing of Ethan Carter, which sounds like a early 1900s American novel. It does, yes. I was trying to place it right alongside uh, is it Ethan Frome. <laughs> Maybe that's it, yeah. Uh, it was published in 2014, winner of the 2015 Game Innovation Award from the British Academy of Film and Television Arts with an 82 out of 100 rating on Metacritic. Uh, my wife and I recently played it to celebrate Halloween because it's a horror game, kind of. <laughs> spooky. Yeah, it's spooky. Uh, the game, as soon as you start it up, tells you that this game is a narrative experience that does not hold your hand. Is that a direct quote? Like it flashes that text yes. up on the screen? Yes, it literally flashes that text on the screen. Okay. So, you know you got to put your big boy pants on. <laughs> they could just say that or... instead. Or bigger foot on here. <laughs> no, because uh, that would gender the, uh, uh, the instructions. Point, yes. I'm sorry. Put on your big person pants. Or just big pants. Big. Put on your big <laughs> pants. <laughs> uh, so you play a psychic detective investigating a child, the eponymous Ethan Carter, who has disappeared in a rural mining area. And the gameplay, uh, we keep... We keep on gravitating back to walking simulations. Yes, I was hoping that would come up. <laughs> the gameplay is basically walking around and occasionally you run into a puzzle that you have to solve. There are two basic types, what I call story puzzles and then what I call murder puzzles. I love the idea of just not knowing anything else. I love the idea of, of a murder puzzle. <laughs> So the story puzzles, basically Ethan has left around a bunch of handwritten stories and whenever you read them, they become reality for a little bit and you have to solve a riddle of a sort. So for example, in one case, you enter a house and you read a weird note that sounds like it's a ritual for summoning demons. And after reading it, each door in the house shows you a hazy image of a room. And if you click on it, the image cycles through other images of other rooms. And when you walk through, you're teleported to the room that you saw. So at first, I thought it was a teleportation maze. Like, do you remember that one level in the very first Halo, Chad, where it was just a bunch of small rooms with teleporters? Yeah, it was one of the multiplayer arenas, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of us, maybe it was me, would just stand on the other side of one of the teleporters and wait for someone to run through the door and just tag them with a, a grenade. That sounds like your play style. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then someone would start watching my screen to figure out which door I was looking at. And then I'd have to look at a blank wall, and it was lots of fun. But yeah, I, I think I've been suitably traumatized by that, that any time a game has any kind of teleportation, I assume that's the kind of thing that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, so I was, you know, teleporting around. No no grenades in this, this game, unfortunately. But I couldn't figure out what room I was supposed to get to. I got to the top of the house, and there was, like, books on a desk. And I was like, oh, I was supposed to get here. But nothing happened. But then I noticed that some doors, when I went through them, made my screen flash red. And when I got two red flashes, the puzzle would kick me out and I'd have to reset it. So two strikes and you're out. Two strikes and you're out. So I read the the note a little bit more closely. It said, permit only those who can discern every true interior to pass. So uh, my wife suggested that you have to set the image of each door to match what is actually behind the door. Okay, that's a logical conclusion, yeah. Mm, yeah, so so we solved the puzzle partly by guessing, partly by eliminating the images we'd already used in other doors, and then a strategy I used that wasn't very successful was trying to look at the sun and figure out what rays mm. of the sun were going in which direction. Any context and... clue you could get. Yeah. Um, anyway, you're supposed to actually just go to the house next door, and the answers are basically... <laughs> <laughs> What, how the house next door looks but anyway we we solved it and uh and that's an example of one of the, the story puzzles there's other ones like um you find a pole in the middle of a field and suddenly a spaceman appears and runs away from you oh that's unexpected like a guy in an astronaut suit yeah so that was interesting one involves summoning cthulhu basically <clears throat> this is a varied game yeah so but also there's the murder puzzles. Mm-hmm. Is this where you murder a puzzle? <laughs> no, this is where uh, a murder has created a puzzle. Ah, the other way around. You'll switcheroo. So, for example, uh, very early in the game, you see these uh, train tracks, which are basically the only indication you have of which direction you're supposed to be moving in the game. Uh, the train tracks have some severed legs on them. Mm-hmm. Problematic. And the, yeah. yeah, problematic. And the the rest of the body is somewhere else, a little bit further away. Mm. There's some ropes attached to the rails, and there is a dead spot of grass in the shape of a small train engine, which has since moved down the tracks about five minutes okay. away. And if you look at the train, you get this like psychic image of a crank by a shore. And it's like a really old train engine where you crank it to start it. I don't know if that's an actual thing, but we'll go with it. it's what's, in the, it's what's it. in the game. So basically what you have to do is you have to move the objects around to recreate the scene as it was before the murder happened. And then that'll trigger the next stage of the puzzle, which is you seeing the murder in five different little episodes with ghostly images of the people as the murder was being committed. And then you have to put those murder images in the correct order, and then you get a lovely little cutscene of the murder happening. Oh, okay. I would so... never in a million years have come up with that as the goal. <laughs> right, and I didn't, and I, I totally just passed this puzzle by at first because I was like, all right, that the crank and that body's in two parts. That's <laughs> unfortunate for that man. Um,. And a while later, I'm in a cemetery, and I found a lantern, and there was some textual clue that said, 
uh, that I had to put the lantern back on this crate. So I, so I did. The clue is like fix. So I thought, oh, if I put the lantern here, maybe my guy will sit down and fix the lantern. Mm-hmm. But he just he he just put it there, and and that was it. And I was like, well, are you gonna fix the lantern or or like what did I just fix? Yeah. And so I realized that as I found more objects, once I put them back into place, that was fixing in the. I guess the vocabulary of the game, and then I accidentally kicked off the the murder episode. So that's when I realized, oh, I have to recreate the the murder scene. So then, did you run back to the train one and complete that? Uh, yes, yes, I did. I ran all the way back. So this game does have a run button. Oh, excellent! Well, I don't know if that might disqualify <laughs> it from all of our future discussions, as, as well as an obligatory crouch function Sweet. that is used exactly once in the game. It's there for a reason. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I ran back and I reattached the crank to the train and I moved the train. I started the train and I moved it back over the, the to the dead grass. Um, and then that triggered the murder scenes. And it turns out that Ethan was being tied to the tracks by a bad guy and he escaped and his grandfather ran over the murderer. Okay. <laughs> and his grandfather finished the job by whacking the murderer over the head with the crank. All right. Good job, Grandpa. Good job, Grandpa. Um, the game is about everyone descending into to madness. I'm picking up on that, yeah. <laughs> in case it wasn't clear. Um, so, yeah, that's the discovery learning part. So I saw a couple examples there. Uh, the, the train murder and then the, the cemetery murder, which involves someone spread-eagled on a slab in a tomb. And then through kind of trial and error, I you know intuited that you're supposed to restore the murder scene. With the story puzzles, each objective is different, but generally, you know, you find an out-of-place object somewhere, and then you have to solve a riddle within a confined space, and then things will reset if you uh, if you get them wrong. So the story puzzles are like gatekeepers, you have to complete them to move forward, and the murder puzzles are optional? Uh, interesting question. Um, so the, the story puzzles are actually optional until the very end of the game. Okay. You can actually skip all of them, and at the very end of the game, you see basically clues about places that you were supposed to have solved these story puzzles, and you have to go back and solve them before the game will end. Oh, so ultimately you have to get to them, but not necessarily in a certain order. Yeah, at least I imagine so. I, I had actually run into all of them before I got to the end, mm-hmm. but the way the game presented it, and based on my other experiences in games, that that's what it was telling me. The uh, the murder puzzles are actually the kind of the, the gating for the game. Mm-hmm. So, like, when you solve the, the cemetery puzzle, Ethan is running away at the end of it, and he says something about a secret entrance to the mines. And you can actually go to where the secret entrance is, but there's no trigger that lets you enter it until you see this scene with Ethan telling you about the secret entrance. Ah, unlike the approach Gone Home used, where if you know the secret passages are there, you can run straight to them or walk slowly straight to them right and i I much prefer gone home's method because because i ran all around the mine before i solved the cemetery puzzle so i solved the cemetery puzzle and i thought to myself well i already ran all around the mine so maybe there's some other secret place i didn't run to i probably would have thought the same so i was actually getting frustrated at that point i was about ready to to put down the game (laughs) but uh, I persevered and discovered the rest of the game. It was only about a four or five hour experience, but 
Uh, it, it was worth it. I, I had some good times. Oh, it. the game as a whole was only four to five hours. Yeah. Oh, I was picturing something much much longer. This that changes my view of it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you solve about four or five story puzzles and four or five murder puzzles, and then that's that's kind of the the end of the game. Okay. So, just you know, a little bit longer, maybe about twice as long as as Gone Home. I feel like this game is a good example of the the light side of discovery learning. That implies a dark side. Oh, it does imply a dark side, which we will be talking about in our our next installment. So tune back in for that. In the meantime, you've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Brandon Carper. And I'm Chad Hafley. And uh, a special announcement before we go. To make it more convenient to share your thoughts on our episodes, we've launched a new Facebook group. Just search for Gamification Unlocked and follow our page. Share it even, maybe. If you head there right now, you can see a clue about which game we'll be talking about next week, so see if you can guess what lies beyond on the dark side of Discovery Learning. Until next time, it's your move.